You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, October 24th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, folks. How are you doing tonight? Where's Bob? Oh. Bob's running late, but he will join us later in the show, or so he claims. We'll see. I thought we were mm. just going to sneak him in by the magic of editing. <laughs> nah, screw him. He's here the whole time. <laughs> We've done really, it before. You, know, you guys don't even know. That's listeners. true. Bob has only shown up actually for three shows. That's Bob right. Bob is actually a complicated ventriloquism project that Steve's underwent. Very successful. Very successful. Are you saying that Bob's a baboon, Steve? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, have a heart. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> terrible, terrible. It's going to be that kind of show tonight. <laughs> Are you saying that Bob is monkeying around? Just going to open up another beer here. Hold on. Okay. Hey, so... Speaking of baboon hearts, what do you know about Bob? Having no segue on... (laughs) This happens to be the 30th 30th anniversary of when baby Faye became the first infant recipient of an organ from a non-human animal. And it was, in fact, a baboon heart. It was known as a xenotransplant. And these are extraordinarily rare but that was the first one done on an infant. And when I was researching this, I actually found it so interesting that I did a whole YouTube video about it. So you oh could, because I knew we wouldn't have time to go to all the details on this, but it's fascinating. So you could check, check out that if you want more, but let me give you guys the outline. So mm-hmm. baby Faye was born with a condition where her, the left side of her heart was underdeveloped. And so the right side had to do all of the heavy lifting of pumping blood through her body, which isn't sustainable. So most babies who are born with the syndrome, it's hypoplastic left heart syndrome, end up dying after about 10 days or so if the condition's left untreated. And so baby Faye's doctor, Dr. Leonard L. Bailey at the Loma Linda University Medical Center told her parents that Baby Faye's best option was to receive this transplant of a baboon heart. So they agreed. They did the surgery. And 20 days later, Baby Faye died, which is oh. obviously horribly tragic. But at the same time, he effectively doubled her life expectancy. So from Dr. Bailey's point of view, this was a moderate success. And about a year later, he went on to perform one of the first, if not the first, regular transplants, uh, heart transplants into a newborn baby. And you mean human to human? Human oh, to yes. human. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so that's the story as it is. But at the time, there was a ton of controversy. Animal rights activists were annoyed because animals were being killed for human organs. That's the future that was, that this was proposing. Um, also, there was a big to-do over whether or not the parents had any right to uh, agree to undergo this risky operation on their infant. Do they have the right to make that decision for another person? Sure. So that, <laughs> well, you know, that that's that was an argument that was being hashed out at the time. And another controversy was whether or not the parents were fully informed at the time of the surgery. And a lot of the evidence suggests that the answer is no, they were not fully informed as to all of the risks. It turns out that Dr. Bailey told them in the consent form that the, that baby Faye's parents signed, it states that 
surgeries that were used at the time to correct the hypoplastic left heart syndrome were largely unsuccessful at, at extending the life of the child. But that was incorrect. There was a surgeon who had been performing those operations with a lot of success since 1979. And they also, the consent form also said that Dr. Bailey had done tons of surgeries that, uh, on, on animals showing that xenotransplants could be very effective at extending the lifespan of, of the baby, which again was untrue. He had performed 160 xenotransplants on mostly goats and sheep, and none of them survived more than six months. And then the kicker, you guys are going to love this. When journalists later asked the doctor why he chose a baboon heart instead of the heart of a species that was closer to humans, evolutionarily speaking, Dr. Bailey said, I don't believe in evolution. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So the entire thing was one large F up, basically. Huh. Uh, and, and oh, it's, boy. it's really tragic because, you know, it resulted in the death of this newborn baby who could have had a shot at life. There are adults today that were born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, you know, who are now in their thirties and are doing very well thanks to the surgeries that were developed, uh, by doctors who understood things like evolution and, um, <laughs> consent forms. <laughs> And things. Yeah, right. And, and ethics. Yeah, and actually managed to create a way of treating the condition that would result in more lives saved. So, Not that there's anything wrong with xenotransplants. There have been a couple of uh, baboon liver transplants. Mm -hmm. um, this is the only uh, xeno heart transplant that I think the, the controversy here killed it. Bailey had planned to do a series of five transplants in like the first series, but he never got past the first one because of the controversy that was created about it. He also didn't put the uh, baby Faye on the heart transplant list, even though infant hearts were not really available at the time. It was kind of a would, would have been a formality. Actually, I read a source that said that there was an infant heart available at the time. Is that right? But, yeah. but he acknowledged he's, he should have put her on the, the yeah, waiting list. Yeah, he didn't even bother yeah. to look for one. Uh, yeah, a little bit too anxious there to get going with this study. Mm -hmm. I also read that uh, that baby Faye's heart didn't have that much rejection, so it, she died of some other reason, probably not an infection, but the rejection itself wasn't that bad, but they still didn't know why she died. Well, apparently um, baboons and humans don't share any antigens, making yeah. it next to impossible to actually match a baboon to a human. Oh, yeah. No, it's totally impossible. But um, they were saying that wasn't why she died so so quickly. It wasn't because her tissue was being rejected. Yeah. The rejection was only mild. But I don't know. I don't know maybe maybe – that was being a little optimistic there. You know, so yeah, even 30 years later, I mean, you know, the, 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 I, the notion is still out there, you know, of, of breeding animals, altering animals, genetically modifying them, whatever that, so that they would actually have organs that could then be harvested for transplantation. It's actually not a bad idea, in my opinion, if, if we could pull it off technically. There is research going on. It doesn't seem to be incredibly popular just because Allotransplants seem to have a lot more potential, mm -hmm. at, at least according to the people who are funding the studies. So that seems to be where all of the money's going. But there are no, there aren't enough organs out there for all the yeah. people who need them. That's the problem. yeah. There's no reason to not check that little box when you get your driver's license and become an organ donor. Everybody should do it. You're not going to use them. 
Well, Jay thinks he's going to use them, but you're not going to yeah. use them. Check well, the just, box. Just get your head frozen and then donate the rest of your organs. Yeah. Yeah, they'll grow you a new body later. Yeah. Love to think that in 40 years or so that, you know, technology will have advanced to the point where, um, you know, there's a possibility, right? Of, yeah. of which? what? Of, cry- of cryonics. <laughs> Yeah, but we're not going to get into that discussion yeah, right now. Instead, Jay, you're going to tell Jay, you're going to tell us about PPMOs. PPMOs. It, it actually sounds like you're about to P-P. say something uh, weird or silly, but no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we get there, let me just give a little background here. So this is a, a news item about an, a new antibacterial, but I want to give a little background on what antibacterials are. They kill bacteria, right? They do. They are fully against bacteria. They go to war with bacteria for us. <laughs> um, you know, antibacterials are incredible. They're a powerful drug in today's arsenal of all the treatments that we have, you know, that we, that people receive. Antibacterials are massively effective, widely used, and have saved millions of lives and improved the quality of a lot of people's lives as well. Can I ask a question? Who here knows somebody who would be dead without antibiotics? I do. Oh, yeah. I do. Multiple Definitely. people. Who doesn't? Yeah. One of my children might be dead with that antibiotics. Sure. Aye, aye, aye. However, the downside to antibacterials is that many dangerous bacteria have grown resistant to them, right? Remember there was a scare that our, our current bacteria, antibacterials are losing their power and, you know, in the future, what are we going to do? And today's antibiotics work by disrupting a bacteria's cellular function. Antibiotics can come with other side effects that we don't want. They can vary from fever, nausea, major allergic reactions, something called photodermatitis, um, which is being, you know, sensitive to light. And, you know, these are things, all of these things are terrible. And, you know, a lot of people might not realize that you can get all these different symptoms from an antibiotic. Jay, for completeness, let me na- mention a couple of things. So you mentioned that antibiotics kill bacteria. Um, actually, a lot of antibiotics just keep them from reproducing. So there are bactericidal antibiotics that kill bacteria, but there's a lot of bacteriostatic antibiotics. So, you know, if the bacteria can't reproduce, that just gives your immune system an opportunity to wipe them out so they can't spread. That's cool. So on October 15th of this year, 2013, research was published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases by researchers at Oregon State University or Oregon State University, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, and Sarpeta, Inc., regarding a new class of antibacterials called PPMOs. So this stands for, prepare yourself for massive mispronunciation, peptide conjugated photophorodiamatite morpholino oligomerlin animal studies. What are the, what is that, Steve? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Sum that up. Yeah, so it's you got the peptide conjugated, correct? Thank you. Those are the shortest words in that whole sentence. So that'd be phosphoradiamidate morpholino oligomer. All right, you just made those words up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, of he did. PPMOs tested very well against Acinobacter, and this is a serious and deadly group of bacteria that has a very high death rate. Um, they are commonly spread in hospitals, and they're a global threat, typically. They cause re- respiratory infections and sepsis. Uh, and they also are deadly to anyone who has a compromised immune system. In many cases, PPMOs were far more effective than existing antibiotics, and they were found effective against bacteria that has become resistant to our current suite of antibiotics. Human testing has not begun. They are testing PPMOs on other animals. 
And what makes them even more interesting is the fact that they fight bacteria in a completely different way. And this is actually what we were waiting for. We were waiting for a brand new approach. What they do is they disrupt a bacteria's genes. So they're a synthetic analog of DNA or RNA, and they can neutralize the expression of specific genes. Bruce Geller, a professor of microbiology at OSU College of Science and lead author on the study, said the mechanism that PPMOs use to kill bacteria is revolutionary. They can be synthesized to target almost any gene and in that way avoid the development of antibiotic resistance and the negative impacts sometimes associated with broad-spectrum antibiotics. So that being said, they are custom tailor creating these PPMO drugs to fight specific bacteria. And they're attacking them by attacking the DNA and the RNA of, of certain bacteria, which means that it's such a specifically targeted medication that it doesn't do a lot of other things in the system. They're, they're, they are supposed to be a lot safer and a lot easier to your, you know, easier for your body to deal with. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I mean, they're very specifically targeted. They go after one gene and we could choose what gene that is to make sure it's not one that the bacteria share with, with humans. And also. Like Gene Bukowski lives down the street from me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> also, Jay, did you know, did you come across in your reading that these PPMOs are being used to treat more than just bacterial infections? They could be used to treat genetic diseases because you can target them against a, an abnormal mutant gene that creates a, a protein where the protein, it's the abnormal protein is part of the disease, is part of the problem. You could block the production of these abnormal proteins. Yeah, I thought that that was even more interesting than the antibacterial aspect, Steve, because yeah. They're going to be able to, this is the beginning of them custom tailoring, you know, medications to treat specific diseases and ailments or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah, just any time where you can block a gene and that can have an effect that you want, you know, this is potential treatment. Uh, however, regarding the, the bacterial resistance, because I, you know, in reading about the PPMOs as antibiotics, it did say that this would be a, a solution to resistance. But I, in doing research, I found papers showing that there's resistance to PPMOs. Oh, come on. So, uh oh. Well, think about it. If, if the PPMO is targeting a specific sequence on a gene, a mutation in that sequence can then make it lose its specificity. But then couldn't we just make a PPMO against the new mutation? Yeah, um, we could. Without but we limit? How fast can we whip these out, though? I mean, isn't there yeah, quite a bit of research that goes in and everything? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if we yeah. if we automate it to the point where we could, you know, maybe even t do a, a blood culture of you, find out what bug is in your system, manufacture a PPMO right then and there against that strain of that bacteria, that would be the ideal situation, and then kill off that bacteria and that bacteria strain alone in your body. Um, and then if it mutates, just... Or maybe, you know, target, target a few different gene sequences or one mutation won't cut it. You know, you gotta, you have to mutate against all of them. Who knows? See, I have a really good idea. What, let's 3D print PPMOs on the spot in your house. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's you just gave a TED talk right there. That was <laughs> in <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so this is an exciting new technology. There's no doubt about it. it doesn't sound as sexy as like stem cells, but it, it is. It actually really is. You know, the, the the ability to target specific gene sequences is, has a tremendous potential. This is a basic technology. I think we're going to be hearing about for quite some time. Well, Rebecca, we we've covered a couple of political-ish news items recently. And bef Whoa! before Sorry. you go into this next item, which is about scientific literacy and political ideology, 
Uh, I do want to say the SGU is an apolitical program. We do not endorse any end of the political spectrum. When we, when we talk about politics, it's only it has to do with in, its interaction with science, scientific literacy, or a specific scientific issue that we're dealing about. So with all that in mind, there's a, was a surprise, <laughs> a <it> surprising <laughs> result, if you will, regarding a recent study about scientific literacy and politics. That's right, Steve. Science says that the government should crumble and we should all live in anarchy forever. So that's the SG's official endorsement now. <laughs> yep. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we no. are all anar- we are all anarchists. Yes. Okay. Uh no. Okay. So a few days ago, Evan alerted us to a story that was traveling around tea party circles and it had headlines like Yale professor says tea partiers better at science and Yale study tea party members are more scientifically literate than non tea party members, etc. And all the articles reported that Yale psychology professor Dan Kahan, well known to the SGU audience by now, I hope, proved solidly that tea partiers were smarter at science than both Democrats and Republicans. Take that. And most of the articles quoted Kahan as saying, I've got to confess, though, I found this result surprising. As I pushed the button to run the analysis on my computer, I fully expected I'd be shown a modest negative correlation between identifying with the Tea Party and science comprehension. But then again, I don't know a single person who identifies with the Tea Party. All my impressions come from watching cable TV, and I don't watch Fox News very often, and reading the paper, New York Times Daily, plus a variety of politics-focused internet sites like Huffington Post and Politico. I'm a little embarrassed, but mainly I'm just glad that I no longer hold this particular mistaken view. So when I read those articles, I was confused because I had just read Kahan's post on his site, culturalcognition.net, and it wasn't a study. It was just a blog post, uh, which was describing some preliminary findings of some research Kahan is doing. So what happened was Kahan completed a survey where he gauged the scientific literacy of Americans by... Uh, and, and then examining that data by looking at the differences between people of differing political persuasions, differing education levels, and differing religiosity levels. And he also did ask if his subjects identified as a member of the Tea Party. And sure enough, when it came to politics, Tea Partiers were more scientifically literate than Democrats and Republicans. But he knew there was a but coming. Here's what those Tea Party posts conveniently left out. Kahan's results showed that liberals were slightly more scientifically literate than conservatives. And Kahan pointed out that while that was a statistically significant result, it was practically insubstantial, especially when it comes to figuring out how we'll solve the problem of politically biased scientific illiteracy. And to prove his point and stop liberals from misusing that data point to bash conservatives, he then went on to mention that he found uh, that the Tea Parties, that the Tea Party members were higher than the liberals. But again, it was almost exactly the same amount. Uh, so it was still sig- statistically significant. But again, it was practically useless. So here's a quote from Kahan that the Tea Partiers did not use in their posts. Again, the relationship is trivially small and can't possibly be contributing in any way to the ferocious conflicts over decision-relevant science that we are experiencing. And later he writes, 
Next time I collect data, too, I won't be surprised at all if the correlations between science comprehension and political ideology or identification with the Tea Party movement disappear or flip their signs. These effects are trivially small, and if I sample 2,000-plus people, it's pretty likely any discrepancy I see will be, quote, statistically significant, which has precious little to do with, quote, practically significant. So a few days after the Tea Party blogs flipped out over his original post, Kahan posted an update in which he just completely rages about how his words were twisted to basically advance exactly the opposite of his interpretation of the data. Uh, Kahan vehemently states that there is no good evidence to suggest that the differences between political policies has any bearing on the scientific literacy of adherence to the various political parties. In other words, he says that if we want to increase public understanding of things like climate change, we can't have a metaphorical dick measuring contest over which political party is smarter. And he, Did he, say he actually does use that metaphor. He doesn't okay. use the word Just, dick. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, okay. <laughs> he, uh, he gives a few, uh, really cut and dry takeaways from his research, including this one, um, Tea Party members are like everyone else, as far as I can tell, when it comes to science comprehension. Is this something to be proud of? I don't think so. It means if we were to select a Tea Party member at random, there would be a 50% chance he or she would say that antibiotics kill viruses as well as bacteria, and less than a 40% chance that he or she would be able to correctly interpret data from a simple experiment involving a new skin rash treatment. He also goes on to refer back to his previous research, which we covered fairly recently here on the SGU. Uh, you guys might recall we talked about um, the study that looked at how those who have more scientific literacy, regardless of their political affiliation, are more likely to engage in politically motivated reasoning using that skin rash treatment uh, test. So, yeah, basically, he's d- currently in the midst of some interesting research. Some Tea Partiers took it out of context in the way that he had previously found liberals doing with any study mm-hmm. that showed that liberals were more scientifically literate than conservatives. And he absolutely flipped out over it. But it's very entertaining to read uh, Kahan yeah. flipping out because yeah. he's, he's very intelligent and very... um very, very careful. You know, he, he desperately wants people to understand that his viewpoint, it may not be a viewpoint that we share, that our li- listeners share, but I think we can appreciate that it's his viewpoint based on the science that he has seen and done, is that uh, it doesn't matter what political party you ascribe to. Our, our scientific literacy is all pretty much the same, and we have to find different ways of reaching across party lines in order to increase consensus on things like global warming amongst the general public. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're talking about these slight variances, you know, basically everyone is, it has a low level of scientific literacy on average, you know? And so they're, they're arguing about which group of scientifically illiterate Americans are slightly less scientifically illiterate than the other. And that's not the factor here. That's not the big factor. The big factor is motivated reasoning and, not using your intelligence because you're, you know, you're ideologically blinkered. That's the problem. It's denialism of science. It's not, I mean, I, I'm not, not minimizing scientific literacy as a problem. Obviously, I think if everybody were significantly more scientifically literate, we would be better off. But the 
the differences between liberals and conservatives, tea parties and whatever is not this sliver of statistical, you know, difference between you look at the curves, they're almost completely overlapping except for these slight variances. And he makes an interesting point. We actually had a question on this a few weeks ago. Remember about overpowered studies? What does that mean for a study to be mm -hmm. overpowered? And he said that in his last paragraph that he's collecting data on thousands of people. So any slight little difference is probably going to be, you know, statistically significant. And so the overpowered studies will tend to show effects which are not, are, are irrelevant, are practically insignificant, but they will be statistically significant. And as we discussed previously, I'll just encapsulate very quickly. There's a ton of factors here that he's not looking at with, with, this pre-published, you know, raw data that he's looking at here. There are, you know, so many different things. Like, for example, if Tea Party members are just slightly wealthier or more educated on average, that could explain the slight, you know, variance that we're seeing. Um, it doesn't say anything about the relationship between science, attitude towards science, critical thinking, scientific literacy, and any particular ideology. Yep. And I think that's been our experience in the, what, better than almost 20 years that we've been, you know, exposed in the skeptical community yeah. and, you know, science studies and, and all that, Steve. I think we've, uh, that's kind of been our feel for it over the time. Our subjective experience. As it yeah, is, is it, but, yeah. You yeah. get it from all sides. Yeah, basically. All right. Let's move on. Evan, you're going to tell us about this new dangerous health scare, wind turbine <laughs> syndrome. Dun, dun, dun. Wait a second. <laughs> yeah. What, 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 what? People's ears flopping? Like, what's happening? Ed? Yeah, so here's what's happening. Several residents of Falmouth, Massachusetts, which is on Cape Cod, have, fi have filed lawsuits claiming that three 400-foot-tall 1.63-megawatt turbines were responsible for an array of adverse health effects. The symptoms being reported by the residents include headaches, tinnitus, insomnia, dizziness, sensations of fluttering in the chest, and that's just to name a few. There's even more than Although that. it's tinnitus. No, it's tinnitus. It's not inflammation of anything. It's ringing in the ears, tinnitus. So all those commercials that I'm hearing on the radio and everywhere are wrong? They're all pronouncing it incorrectly. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> okay. It's tinnitus. But, but Steve, <laughs> if everybody says it wrong, then maybe they're all right. I mean, okay, officially you'll find that both pronunciations are used and accepted. There's also an English-British difference, I think, in the pronunciation. But I prefer tinnitus because tinnitus sounds like inflammation, and that is misleading. Therefore, I th tinnitus should be preferred. Aha. Uh -huh. I thought I just meant heebie-jeebies. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> in any, any case. Anyway. Uh, so in 2011, a doctor at Harvard Medical School diagnosed one of the residents with something the doctor called wind turbine syndrome. Plaintiffs are seeking anywhere between $150,000 and $300,000 in damages for loss of value of their home and to cover their medical bills. The name wind turbine syndrome was coined by a gal named Nina Pierpont. Uh, she's a John Hopkins University trained pediatrician. Uh, her husband is an anti-wind activist. That's just a coincidence, words, Kevin. Evan, that has nothing to do with her medical opinions well, here. Well, yeah. And she she lives in New York, in upstate New York, and she calls wind turbine syndrome the green energy industry's dirty little secret. 
Uh, she published a book in 2009 called Wind Turbine Syndrome, uh, which included case studies of people who lived within uh, 1.25 miles of these wind turbines, and they uh, reportedly got sick. So, once again, we must step back from all the noise and the anecdotes and the politics and ask ourselves, what's the evidence? What is the evidence which is supporting the claims that wind turbines are the cause of these people's symptoms? So, has this been studied? Uh, yeah, it has, actually. There have been a lot of studies about this. So, modern wind farms have been in use around the world for decades, but only... In more recent years, perhaps the last five years or so, have human health-related complaints been reported? Uh, there have now been 17 reviews of available evidence about wind farms. Um, these are reviews of all studies, not just single pieces of research. And in each of these reviews have concluded that wind turbines uh, can annoy a minority of people in their vicinity, but there's no strong evidence that they make people ill at all. So what might... what? else might be going on here we not we don't have just like one or two people we've got you know in some communities dozens of people all claiming to have similar kinds of symptoms where have we where have we heard this before where have we seen this before i don't know wi-fi you guys the wi-fi you guys remember mm-hmm yeah, the Wi-Fi illness the uh the case with students in upstate new york we covered last mm -hmm. year what what was their condition steve they um they had psychogenic symptoms Right, psychogenic symptoms. So these are all uh, these are all examples of what is known as communicated diseases, um, and it spreads via the nocebo effect. And in fact, they're calling this, or they have called wind turbine syndrome, a textbook example of the nocebo effect. Right? If you believe something bad's going to happen, chances are your brains are going to make it happen. Or not and even that. Even simpler, it, you have nonspecific symptoms. For whatever reason, you're not sleeping well, you're depressed, and you look for a specific cause. Maybe it's that big wind turbine I don't like looking at you know, on the hill over there, or it's all these power lines buzzing overhead, or whatever. Make up your fake cause. And I think that's you know, resp responsible for a lot of this. There is also evidence suggesting that the feedback people get from each other, if you start, you know, two people tell two other people and they start telling other people, then, yeah, the symptoms actually will spread because people will start associating whatever little aches, pains, or discomforts that they're experiencing, and they're going to attribute it to, oh, well, it must be the wind turbines that John down the street is experiencing. And it's been proven that this uh, this is a real uh, psychological effect that takes place in communities. And, you know, when, when when you're talking about the choice of target here and what could be causing these nonspecific problems, I think there might be another thing going on here, which I will call nimbyism. I think they have a, a severe <laughs> case of nimbyitis or not in my backyard itis. Because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, having lived in Boston during the Cape Wind Project's approval process, it was really astonishing to see the excuses that rich people came up with to prevent the turbines from going in. And this isn't to suggest that there aren't uh, often real concerns about wind turbines and, for instance, their environmental impact. But the right. arguments against the wind turbines going in where they went in, which was in uh, Nantucket Sound, were primarily things like this will affect the yachting routes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This will lower property, property values. values because of, mm -hmm. yeah. And, but they lost. The Cape Wind project was approved. And so this is the next step. The, the turbines are causing health issues. There is a sliver of plausibility here. And there are a couple of published 
studies, not really studies, more like analyses of is this possible? And that is the, these really big wind turbine turbines do cause infrasound. Infrasound, yeah. Yeah, and that could annoy, yeah. could annoy certain people. So what certain is that, Steve? Could, Isn't that that warbly, like, uh, flutter of, uh, of air circulating? Well, by definition, sound that's too low for your hear, ears to hear. It's like when trucks go over a freeway. I think that's probably the most common yeah. source that people get mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. And it's been blamed for a huge number of problems, very few of which I've seen solidly supported by yeah. research. It's known as the brown note because it was rumored to cause some people to poop themselves, uh, <laughs> in <sustained laughs> notes, which was studied. Uh, well, there's an actual crazy. study where they played the brown note <laughs> to a theater full of people listening to an orchestra. Oh. They were asked to, um, <laughs> to, to write certain songs and during some songs they played the brown notes and others they did not. There were did no cases poop? of pooping. Come on. There were no cases nope. of pooping. <laughs> the brown nope. note is a nope. lie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so in, with regard to wind turbine sy- syndrome, they certainly do not have their ducks in a row. They haven't proven that people who think that they're sensitive can actually tell when or when they are or are not being uh, exposed to an active wind turbine, that it is causing their symptoms, that there's a specific mechanism there, that their syndrome even can be identified, that it has a, a, any features that, that identify it as wind turbine syndrome. It's just nonspecific symptoms and supposition. That's all they got at this point in time. It's not impossible, crazy impossible, but chances of it actually turning out to be real are pretty small. Um, and even if there is, is a really, a real, a minority of people who are sensitive to infrasound from wind turbines, that doesn't mean that it explains all cases. I think most cases probably right. are just people who have nonspecific symptoms and are looking for a cause. Or as Rebecca says, it's a convenient excuse not to have a giant wind turbine in your And I'm not saying that they're area. necessarily consciously doing that even so. I, I do think that there's, there could be a very good chance that someone has these nonspecific symptoms and they will naturally gravitate toward the thing that they hate. Uh, not, mm-hmm. not coming up with these symptoms as a way to, to get rid of the turbines. Although maybe that would happen too. Also, you know, these wind turbines are all over the world. I've seen them in Hawaii. I've seen them in Sweden. Personally, and I, They're big in Australia. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. That's right. Ev. And, uh, a lot of other people around the world would be complaining about this. I, I, I find it hard to believe that the only people that are finding, you know, these symptoms are people that live near the ones in Nantucket. So, Bob, you finally made it. Yes. Hey, Bob. <laughs> to the big time. Bob, just joining us now. You're, so you're going to tell us about exoplanets. Not that we we haven't talked about them before, but uh, apparently we passed a bit of a milestone. Yeah, we did. Do you guys remember uh, in 1995 when you know, when the news was released of that first confirmed exoplanet discovery? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah I, I remember. Mm. <laughs> I'm still world- reeling from it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't believe them still. 95, the World Wide Web was just a little baby back then. It seems like so so long ago. Um, World Wide what? Yeah. Well, on, a, on October 22nd, 2013, that number officially surpassed 1,000 exoplanets confirmed. Well, confirmed within a reasonable degree. So that uh, that's news for celebration, I think. Uh, the last pulse of 11 planets, because they were at 999, uh, the last grouping of 11 came from the UK's wide-angle search for planets known as WASP. Have you guys heard of this guy? It's, it's amazing. It consists of two completely robotic observatories, each one observing a hemisphere 24 7, 365.24. 
or or pretty damn close all the time. They're just checking out the skies, and they each have these eight wide-angle cameras that can monitor millions of stars all at once, just waiting for one you know to move in front of a star, blocking some of its light. And uh, that's obviously the transit method, and we've talked about that a bunch. But that's not the only way to spot exoplanets, and it's not the most prolific either. Um, at the top of the heap is radial velocity. That That's the most common. Most of these planets have been discovered this way. And the idea behind that is that as a star and a planet orbit around their center of mass, that resulting Doppler effect of the star moving towards us and then away uh, can, uh, can be seen in the spectral lines. So you could you can infer the existence of the planet based on that. And then, of course, second most is the transit method, which I which I discussed. Uh, the, the the planet eclipses the star, and the light dips. And if you can see, sense that pattern, um, you could uh, infer as well that there's that there's a planet there. And that's I, I couldn't get a number of how many of these thousand and ten uh, were discovered because of the transit method, but it's the second most popular way of finding them. Then uh, there's a few more that I wasn't even aware they were using. There's gravitational microlensing. Uh, Microlensing is like putting a gargantuan lens deep in space. In this case, the lens is the gravitational field of the star acting like a lens, magnifying the light of a distant background star. Um, of course, uh, whole galaxies or even clusters of galaxies can, can, can form this lens as well. But planets orbiting one of these lensing stars can cause weird stuff to happen to the magnified light. So if you examine that light and how it changes, then you can also infer that there must a planet must have been causing that. And there's been 13 detections to date using this uh, gravitational microlensing method. Uh, there's pulsar timing. This one is interesting. Uh, yes, pulsars can have planets. Uh, if they're close enough, these planets can cause tiny observable anomalies in the timing of the radio pulses that the pulsar emits. There you go. So far, we found about five planets using uh, this pulsar timing method. And then uh, one of the, the most interesting, I think, is the direct imaging, actually imaging the planet. And we've actually done that. It's extremely difficult, as you can imagine, uh, mainly because a planet could be a millionth of the brightness of its parent star. So they, they found some planets using this method, which is pretty cool. Let's see. The last one I'll mention is the transit timing variation method. Uh, this, this is used for systems with multiple planets, and it's really interesting because these planets orbiting the star, they can slightly mess with each other's orbit. And the cool thing is that... Uh, this can point to the presence of another planet that could be undetectable by other methods, like the transit method, for example. Uh, so this is a great way to figure out if there's other planets in the system where you've already discovered a planet, and there's no other real good way to determine whether those planets are there. And they found a few planets um, using this method. There's been about uh, there's been some estimates I've come across that there's a hundred billion exoplanets out there orbiting their own Milky Way stars. That, of course, does not include the rogue planets we've talked about. And we've only spotted about a th you know, little over a 1,000 of them. 17 billion of those 100 billion may be Earth-sized, and we've only found 11 of those. So clearly, we've, there's so much more to discover out there. I found an interesting chart that, uh, that segregated all the planets that were found based on their size. So in terms of Jupiter-sized, we found 711. Clearly, the lion's share have been these gargantuan Jupiter-sized um, exoplanets. Um, that's 72%. Then the, then the next category was Neptune size. They found 148 that are about Neptune size, 15%. And then there's the super-Earth, bigger bigger than Earth, obviously. We found 100 of them, and that's 11%. And then there's the Earth size. We found 11 Earth-sized exoplanets. And, of course, they're probably the most interesting of all, but that's only 1% of the planets that we found. 
And of course, there's a bias there because it's much easier to detect the, the bigger planets. So who knows what the real distribution is? Uh, Mars-sized, we found seven of them. That's 7% of the total. And then uh, Mercury-sized, we found only three, which is pretty interesting because that's they're so tiny. And that's only 0.3%. You said Mars was seven total. Isn't that 0.7%? Not yes. Said 7%. Did I say seven? Sorry, I meant 0.7. And then yeah. if Mercury was three, yeah, it's point. Yeah, three percent. Yeah, yeah. Good, good catch. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so that these numbers though can go down surprisingly, not just up. And there's two reasons why the number of exoplanets can go down. So one reason is that um, the whole idea of what a planet is is still a little nebulous. And this is actually though the opposite of the Pluto problem, which was the smallest planet before it became a dwarf. Some exoplanets are so big that they may be promoted at some point in the future off the list. Because uh, we may find that they actually are something like, say, brown dwarf stars. Uh, the other reason is that sometimes the data is misleading. Um, if you, when you look at the the data and from another angle, or you are using different filters or whatever, sometimes they disappear. The the exoplanets just like gone. Whoops, sorry, not there. And actually, ten have already been removed for this exact reason. Oops. Um, and uh, very depressingly, uh, this may actually happen to Alpha Centauri B. Uh, remember that one? It's considered the closest exoplanet, but yeah. doubt, doubt has recently been cast on its existence, and it, um, it may just be an artifact, so that would kind of stink. Bob, what's your favorite exoplanet? Well, it was, it was Alpha Centauri B, but, uh, I don't know anymore. Come on, it might, it's like it might not Sophie's even choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about Kepler 16b, the first circumbinary planet? Circles to yeah, the stars. Yeah, yeah. Very that's cool. cool. That's, that's, that's excellent. Cool. But there's more depressing news. Uh, Abel Mendez, he's uh, from the Planetary Habit- Habitability Laboratory at the University of Puerto Rico. He says that if it weren't for the lack of funding and telescopes, the number of exoplanets would be a lot higher than just uh, 1,010. So he's kind of bummed. And, you wow. know, as excited, excited as he is, he he's kind of like me. He just sees like, oh, man, well, you know, what could have been? It could have been a, even a lot more. Should um, we throw billions of dollars at this project, Ben? Billions. Uh, <laughs> um I don't know about that. Uh, hundreds of millions at least. <laughs> he considered it, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and then, you, of course, we've got the untimely death of the Kepler Space Telescope, which really is yeah, nasty. And um, it may seem that the, the rapid increase that we've experienced uh, of exoplanets is a thing of the past, but of course, but it's not, I don't think. Remember um, that we still have over 3,200 cataloged objects from Kepler's database to go through. And uh, WASP, of course, is still alive and well. And uh, and other experiments going on, you know, and, uh, other studies going on as well. So uh, that number will uh, probably just slowly increase over time. Maybe not quite as fast without uh, Kepler because that guy just flew through him. But uh, I'm sure we'll get a- another telescope to, to uh, replace Kepler soon. So have a toast for the thousandth or the thousandth and tenth exoplanet discovered since 1995. Well, guys, let's take a quick break from our show to talk about this week's sponsor, Hulu Plus. One of the great things about Hulu is that you can watch it on any platform, meaning your cell phone, uh, you know, an iPad or any kind of pad device. You can watch it on your laptop, your computer, your Xbox, your PlayStation. It's everywhere. High quality. It's just, you know, Rebecca loves it. I do love it. I watch a lot of shows. I'm currently watching uh, I Am Legend, which is not to be confused with the Will Smith movie. It's actually about a South Korean girl band. It's like Gem and the Holograms, but Korean. <laughs> it's great. Well, I've been catching up with uh, watching with my daughter all the episodes of SpongeBob SquarePants because I've kind of been out of that loop for a long time. But she's a big fan of the show right now. So 
I'm very busy with that one. It's a good show. And you can get a free trial of Hulu Plus for two weeks by going to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU or going to the SGU homepage and click on the Hulu Plus link. We will have a link right there for you. Get your two-week free trial. And after that, it's just $7.99 a month for access to all of this excellent programming, original shows as well as movies and TV. And you could do what people do now is binge on series rather than waiting a week for the next episode to come out. You just watch episodes one after the other. That seems to be the new viewing style. Hey, when you want to watch TVs or movies, you got to get on the Hulu Plus. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Well, Evan, it's time once again for Who's That Noisy? Hey, it is time again. Thank you, Steve. So we'll get right to it, shall we? And we're going to play for you last week's Who's That Noisy? And here it is. You haven't heard of the Millennium Falcon? It's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Wait, was that the oh. recording? All right. That sounded sound- different. Yeah. It was a little different, maybe. Crisper. It was, it was much, more, much more eloquent and polished last week. What, what happened? Yeah, I didn't like it last week. <laughs> but this week. <laughs> this week this I like it. Hey, now. Oh, hey, now. Uh, is, is the clip still playing, Evan? <laughs> I, I, it might be. Hang on. Let me find the off button. Damn it. Turn it's it broken. off. It's getting annoying It's broken. Again. <laughs> Brian Mallow is joining us for Who's That Noisy this week. Brian, welcome to the yeah. Skeptics Guide. Well, thanks. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. And why am I here? Because, of course, that was your voice last week. You're the answer to Who's That Noisy from last week. I'm the answer. Let's just leave it at that. Whatever the question <laughs> is, I'm the answer. <laughs> and that was from uh, a YouTube video on science of Star Wars. Yes, the yeah, science or the abuse of science in Star the abuse Wars. Abuse of science in Star Wars, yeah. The old parsec thing. But- yes, which I got to say, you know, I, as I say in the clip, I love Star Wars. I love the movie. It was formative in my early teenage years. But I'm also not above, you know, overanalyzing like all geeks like to do and also, you know, noticing when there's a science problem. It doesn't mean we don't like that. I made it so clear that I like it. I really thought Star Wars fans would like that clip because like me, maybe they're geeks and they, they love the movie, but it's okay to point this out. But wow, not true. Turns out fans uh, of the movie and fans of, uh, they're very unforgiving of the slightest criticism. They're very, you might, they're very dogmatic. Uh, yes, they might remind you of other people you enjoy talking about. Well, I think there's there are different flavors because we are, we're all science fiction Star Wars fans yeah. on the show here, and yeah, we absolutely love to nitpick little science <laughs> errors because why not? You know, right. it, it absolutely says nothing about how enjoyable it is as entertainment as fiction. But uh, I do think there is that that the the flavor that want it to be pristine and don't want the criticism, so they do what you describe in your video as retroactive continuity yes retcon they, they make up shit to make it all make sense after the fact <laughs> which just shows how how creative human beings are at being able to do that you could explain anything after the fact if you really try hard enough right you can and it doesn't matter what the movie or book in question is uh <laughs> right yeah yeah you made in the video you made the the point that in the book in the Star Wars book by George Lucas there was a different line there not parsecs. Well, I mean it's the exact same line and my point was, you know, the question is did he mean, you know, he uses parsecs and that's he uses it like it's a unit of time but it's actually a unit of distance. So in the book it says you haven't heard of the Millennium Falcon, it's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 standard time parts. 
So that would indicate that they did mean time parts, which is a misuse of the word. Um, mm-hmm. so that would go to support my argument there. And then, but, but the other part of it is, wow, standard time parts? That's terrible writing. Like, who would, what happened there? Is this the same guy that invented Wookiees and the Death Star and Jedi Knights and the Force and, and, and lightsabers? And then just what? The, 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 ran dry. He just had nothing. It's like, ah, standard time. Like, we're supposed to believe this is a civilization that never named their basic unit of time. I I know, I I know that Lucas got a lot of things right as far as, you know, good (laughs) writing and cool ideas, but he proved without a shadow of a doubt that he's not a good writer. So we know that he, you know, that was strangely one of the few really bad mistakes that he made because when you look at episodes one two and three they suck so bad oh man that it's it's impossible that he (laughs) wrote star wars i'm you know i know that's the really hard thing and the really the other thing that was heartbreaking is that at that point uh he could have hired the best writers in the world to make those next movies. And why didn't he? Or maybe he thought he was, but, but those just didn't turn out to be, they, they just could have been something because else. Because Brian, he, he, that's the shit that he likes. That's actually what he thinks is the best. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. And I gotta say, that's not necessarily my point of view. I, Cause I still, those movies, those first ones were so good. They were so important. Of course. Of course. They're epic. Are you kidding me? I have important. a D, I have a DL44 in my house right now. I'm with <laughs> you on that. Look, he had to build the technology from scratch. I mean, out of spare parts in the backyard, basically, to make some of those special effects yeah. work in the in the first movie. He invented, reinvented, I guess, how science fiction movies were made. So he technologically very important to the. He industry. betrayed all of us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that just that just makes the betrayal even worse, doesn't it? Um, because he was like that. Um, well, it's it's a lost potential. Those first three movies could have been so good, and it's not like and you're right. Like from the time I was 13 years old. I I was imagining the prequels and and the fabulous story that happened before all of this and how awesome it must have been with the Empire and all all the Jedi and all their glory and the Sith Lords. And then it sucked. And it it was was, such a letdown. I mean, because my imagination was already leaps and bounds beyond the crap that ended up on that screen. Yeah, You know, know, and it's even – guys, do you remember who was that guy on YouTube – I remember I watched it and I was very disappointed and I I don't think I've watched them since, you know? I have not even watched them again, which is a little bit pathetic because it is Star Wars and visually they were still fantastic. But then I watched a YouTube video series, some guy dissecting the first mm. movie to the – I forget who he was. I'd love to <laughs> that, credit him. Bob, but he pl- brought up stuff. Huh? That's Plinkett Reviews from Red Letter. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, Red Letter Media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, Those are it, great. it was amazing. He picked out stuff that I had no idea how stupid it was. And boy, <laughs> that, now I think it's even stupider. So yeah. don't watch that YouTube show if you want to be even more pissed off at Lucas. Yeah, but Jar Jar Binks was a great idea. Oh, my God. You know, the other th- what the thing that got me about that first one, too, is that they, they had Anakin as that as such a little kid and that was so yeah. stupid and 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 it would have been very nice if it paralleled the original storyline by having Anakin start at about Luke's age at when we first meet Luke like yeah, 20, that would have yeah. been nice you didn't have to make him i think a friend of mine and i discussed that it seems like there's this idea that when you're making when you're when your target audience is a young audience that you all of a sudden there's this feeling that you have to make uh heroes that are young kids but, you know, we all grew up with heroes being like adults, Superman and Batman. They didn't have to be little kids. They were Spider-Man and they were, you know, 
this idea that the heroes need to be little kids is is yeah. It makes me question when when the movie came out and I saw the kid and I got the vibe of the kid and I'm like, okay, you could have found a much cooler kid. Like the kid <laughs> was adorable and everything, but like I can't, you know, it it had to be kind of like Batman as a kid. Like even he has to be tough and cool in his own way because of what he becomes. That kid was so soft. Yeah. He was so he was so he was such a, a, a you know made out of marshmallow that he could never become Darth Vader. The kid no. had to be intriguing, and they didn't do it. And then he also think, you know, is the kid in the movie because he wants kids to go to the movie? Like I can't help but think those things. Like, I know. Did he really want Jar Jar Binks, or was Jar Jar Binks in there just for the kids? Like, get this kid out of but here. But then you Lucas. know how mis- <laughs> it was so misguided because then those movies have really complicated political stuff that couldn't be of any interest to kids like it's like it was, it was boring as yeah. hell i fell asleep mm-hmm. during the first one and so i never went back i never saw any of the other ones oh yeah Why you didn't bother? miss anything you what you missed yeah. were densely layered uh cgi effects you know what i That's figured what i missed was george Lu- lucas taking a baseball bat to my childhood <laughs> why i don't need that i don't need that i'm already seeing bronies do it i didn't need to see <laughs> george lucas do it well, Sorry, yeah. Evan, to get back on track a little bit before we go too yeah. far down this rabbit hole, um, did anybody get that correct? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Brian, how about you uh, tell us who this week's winner was? Well, this week's winner is Marcus Gilman. So congratulations, Marcus. Your name will go into the drawing at the end of the year. And if the SGU draws your name, Marcus, you will win the grand prize, which is joining the rogues to play science or fiction on an upcoming SGU episode in 2014. So there you go. Also, a date with Brian Mallow. <laughs> hey. and he'll tell you all about Star enter. Wars. Yeah. yeah. Best <laughs> date <laughs> ever. Maybe some Best of that will be edited out. <laughs> Best date ever. <laughs> Evan, do you have anything new for this week? Absolutely, we do. And also, Brian, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, go ahead and uh, tell the audience what's in store for this week. All right. Well, I am dirty work. It's okay, Brian. (laughs) Look, this is the first time we've ever had a special guest be part of our "Who's That Noisy" segment. And you're going to allow the I'm going to allow the guest. (laughs) Fair enough. Allow the guest to get into the pilot. I'm the first guest presenter of "Who's That Noisy." You are. So history is being made right now. First and possibly last. So this week we have a puzzle. Please remember that our puzzles always have to do with science or skepticism, and this week's puzzle is no exception. So here we go. Uh, you might want to get a pen. I'm not going to stop and wait for you because this is not live radio. It's a pod, it's a file, and you can stop it and rewind it. But get a pen and identify this sequence. 7.5, 7, 7.5, 10, 8.5, 4, 9, 6.5, Nine, six, eight, and finally, 5.5. And I will give you one hint. The number of numbers is significant. So give it your best guess and email your answer to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Or you can join the message boards and post your answer there at sguforums.com. And as Evan says every week, good luck, everyone. I don't know, Evan. You got to be careful here. Brian might be the new Evan. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we should make Brian an offer here. Brian, Brian. Hey, Brian. I'm- I got to ask you. So, out of the 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 three Star Wars movies, what is your favorite moment, scene, or piece Ooh. of dialogue, or whatever? Wow, I thought you were just going to ask favorite movie, and I was even going to have to waffle on that because. 
Star Wars is Star Wars, but Empire Strikes Back was such a cool science fiction movie oh, gosh, that, yeah. that it's even hard to pick between those two, and those are the only two choices. We all know that. But, um... Come on, it's I Am Your Father. <laughs> all right? No, what? Come on, there's oh. Ewoks? Who didn't love those Ewoks? <laughs> oh, I did not like I the Ewoks I had the Ewok at Village. I had, Whose jaw did not hit the ground? Luke, I Am Your Father. It's so yeah, iconic that's awesome. now. I know, so. I know, but you know what? There was one thing that rings into my childhood all the way down to my feet. Like, this is, like, so iconic for me. When when Luke's theme is being played and he's looking at the two sunsets. Yeah. Yeah, you mm-hmm. and every 12-year-old girl, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, that, Jay, you, Come on. Jay yeah. you lied. Jay, you told me it was the lay in a bikini. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a pretty beautiful moment. That You know, for, and also, it's not just... You know, because it's a binary star system and you're like, oh, the awe of science is, is in there. And it's like, you can't help but, but, you know, as, as a science fiction fan my whole life, there's, I always dreamed of the things that I read about and you'd like stargaze and look up and, and I always thought, I was always a little saddened by the fact that I, I just know some of the stuff. I, I had an optimistic view of, of humans. You know, future here <laughs> and thinking, uh, maybe that was reading Asimov and Clark. And, um, so it wasn't cynical. And I believe that much of this stuff will happen one day, but it'll be beyond my life uh, span. So it's like, it was always that, Oh man, this is going to happen, but I'm not going to live to see it. So yeah. that's, uh, yeah, that dual sun, I, you know, I don't know. That's an awesome moment because Darth Vader was so evil in. Empire Strikes Back. I mean, he was at his darkest at those moments. He was just killing his own officers and things. I thought it was fantastic. I really, really got into that movie more than the others. Yeah. Yeah. It was, he was great in that movie, which made the first ones all the more disappointing. Yeah. Plus he, uh, <laughs> he, he had a different director for the second movie. And that's yeah, another, that's another right. movie. Yeah. yeah. One that sticks out, Jay, was the first close up of the Death Star and you saw the, the scope and size of it. And when the, the Millennium Falcon was was docking and you could see how gargantuan that to me, that was pretty epic to, to think a space station the size of a moon. Right. That's so that, no, that, that stands that's no out. Moon. I, that's a space yeah. station. Yeah. 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 I can't say one. I can't pick one. Those two movies have so much, I think, that maybe it's my age, but I uh, grew up. Just assuming space stations were the size of moons. Because <laughs> I'm Clearly. pretty sure I saw Star Wars before I saw a space station. Or I'll give you one scene nobody's mentioned. When they walk, walk into the cantina and you're, you're, oh, all those God. aliens are there. Yes. Yeah, of course, oh, that, of course. That, blew that might be away. number one. That might be number one. Yeah, <laughs> right there. Brian, so be- before we go, go, go into the next science fiction movie, tell us about your career. <laughs> you are a science comedian. What is that? What is that, really? I mean, it's Rare funny that guys, wonderful. nobody ever asks what a political comedian is, but I do get some weird science comedian, and people either immediately are excited by that idea, or they're very filled with dread, total dread. I can't tell you how many times uh, people have told me that, and they're like, what? Because maybe you've heard someone try to be funny in science, and it wasn't funny, it was painful. But, uh, you know, I, I was doing stand-up comedy... Uh, for a long time before I narrowed it down to that, it was always, I liked science, much science and science fiction, much earlier than stand-up comedy. So 
it was pretty natural when I started doing comedy that I drew from that. It was like, I have a geeky background. So it was very natural for me right out the gate to make science references and use the language of science for color, even, even if the topic wasn't science or use some little tidbit, some little science fact. Uh, so that was all very natural for me to do. And so I was always doing it. And it just took the longest time for me to realize that I should just focus on that and cut the other stuff away and just go, Oh, this science comedian. And no, it's brilliant. I mean, science, there's so much comedic potential there. And yeah. Especially if you get the inside jokes. Then, then yeah, and you know, really there's funny. the way I do it, I, I guess I have to come up with a definition, but I actually do a couple different things because I perform for specialized groups. I'll perform for groups of scientists, and you can do it one way where you can – you know, make use of their special language and knowledge and make references and not have to explain them, but count on them getting it. And then I perform for general audiences, in which case you can still talk about like, like, I guess there's two kinds of general audiences. One is not that general. They came for science comedy. So I'm also counting on them knowing some of the stuff I know, but I'm not a scientist. So if you know, you know, you might know the stuff I know because you just love, you're an enthusiast like me. And then there's might be people that aren't quite the enthusiasts. And I think I have plenty of stuff for them that it's, it's funny stuff that I did in nightclubs and it could work with any audience. And maybe it'll make people laugh and go, Hey, science isn't that scary. Or he actually made me laugh, even though he was a geek. Hey, Brian, I see here you serve on the advisory board for the USA Science and Engineering Festival. I do. Science festivals are something that's been going on in Europe and in the UK for a lot longer than it has here. But. Over the past several years, more and more have popped up and they're becoming more popular. And I got involved with one in San Diego several years ago when it was like the first one. And then this USA festival came. So it's really fun for me. It's a place where people come to celebrate science of all the things we celebrate in our culture. Uh, we don't celebrate science enough and we sure spend enough time celebrating Hollywood achievements and uh, sports achievements. And as I sometimes say, we wouldn't even be able to celebrate those things if it weren't for the science and technology that allows us to have those stadiums and those live satellite programs and uh, brought to our into our living rooms with television. You know, of all the things that science makes possible, uh, we don't celebrate science itself. There's one going on right now in San Francisco. I think it's still going on. Um, there's one here in the Triangle, this area in North Carolina where I live around Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill. Um, there's There's been a, a fairly long running one in uh, the Cambridge Science Festival, I think, that's in, you know, the MIT area. All these science... Uh, organizations and big corporations like, like Boeing or someone might have booths. And, uh, like in the case of the National Academies, uh, we did some stuff where I kind of interviewed some scientists on stage. We actually played a couple rounds of what's my line where I had a scientist on stage and we let the audience ask yes or no questions to try to hone in on what their career was or what they, what their research was. So Brian, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for helping us out with who's that noisy. Oh, yeah. Anytime. And hopefully our paths will cross again. I'm sure they will in the future. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. All right, guys. Well, we have another sponsor this week. We're going to talk about Squarespace.com. I've actually been using this to build the SGU Productions website, and it's it's fun. It's actually really easy to use. I like it. What do you think of the template, Steve? Yeah, well, there's a lot of different templates, but you know that's just the starting point. The, the templates are... 
modifiable uh, interactively. So in other words, you don't have to know any programming or code or anything. You just move stuff around, add stuff, delete stuff as you want. You could just, you know, be creative and build your website the way you want. Yeah, you can you can set up a business in minutes. So like you could make your own, for instance, psychic studio, your sort of Miss Cleo thing. It only takes 30 seconds to sign up with Stripe and no talent or psychic powers. <laughs> yeah, they make it really easy to import your content from your previous website or blog. Like Steve said, the templates are, are great, but you can customize them like crazy. And all of Squarespace's templates are uh, they they morph depending on what platform they're on. They're called it's a responsive platform. Very very powerful and really cool. Yeah. So and to be clear, Squarespace is an all-in-one platform. So they will host your website as well as give you the platform to design it, build it, and they give you 24-hour, seven-day-a-week technical support. Yeah. So Squarespace starts at eight dollars a month. Yeah. That includes a free domain name. And if you're going to sign up. Please use offer code SGU10 when you go to squarespace.com and you'll get 10% off. So check out squarespace.com. You can start a trial with no credit card. You can start building your website. It took, you know, I signed up and I started building my website 10 minutes later. Don't forget to use the SGU10 code to get your 10% off. And hey, you know, we'd like to thank Squarespace for supporting the Skeptic's Guide. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Yes, sir. The day is mine. All right, here we go. Three regular news items this week. Item number one. A computer engineer has developed an algorithm to restore a digital image from as little as 1% of the original information. Item number two, a new study finds that younger siblings may contain cells with the DNA of their older siblings. And item number three, researchers find that eucalyptus trees concentrate gold in their leaves and in some areas represent a significant source of the mineral. Bob, go first. Bastard. <laughs> um, damn. It's an algorithm to just... Restore a digital image. 1%. Yeah, that sounds impressive as hell. It obviously is. Now, um, I'm sure if it's like, uh, you know, a hundred pixels, he's not going to do it. But if it's, you know, if, if it's more, uh, more of a diffuse, uh, tiny percentage of the original, I can kind of imagine how they, how they could do it. Yeah. You just say restore. I'm not sure if, you, if you're implying to restore it as it was. With really good fidelity or not, but uh, I'm sure they could restore a vague, a vague semblance of the original from one percent. Uh, still, that's low as hell. That's impressive. Younger siblings may contain cells with the DNA of their older sibling. What? Come on, really? Maybe this is some cell contained <laughs> in the uterus. Oh, God, wow. I don't know. Um, okay, let's look at the third one. Uh, eucalyptus trees concentrating gold. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I can't think of anything that jumps out at me that says it's bullshit significant source of the mineral all right i'm gonna say eucalyptus fiction ah okay jay <laughs> oh god you know like when you think you have like some type of expertise in the field like you know things with computers and stuff i have a lot of experience i'm looking at this and i'm like so an engineer developed an algorithm that can restore a digital image from as little as one percent of the original information like that on the surface can't possibly be true. If you cut away 99% of the information, then what are you restoring 
up to? Because you, you know, how do you expand on that 1%? The only way to do it would be as if it were com- compressed. So it, that, that, this, that, this is very puzzling to me that Steve would even bring this up because it seems so obvious that it's wrong. So that one, I'm not sure about. The second one about the siblings, you know, finding cells from your older siblings, that one is science, I believe. Uh, so this third one here, uh, they find that there's gold in them, thar eucalyptus trees. So if you drink the concentrate from a eucalyptus tree, if you drink it, you are drinking gold. And everybody knows that I love gold. God damn, Steve, this is a hard one because that first one, I'm going to be so pissed about the decision I'm about to make if I'm wrong. But I think I'm going to go with the eucalyptus tree as the fake. Okay. Evan? Restoring a digital image from as little as 1% of the original information, I would think that that has to do with depends what the image originally was. If it's something basic, if it's something not too complex, perhaps you could use as little as 1% of the original information to extrapolate the rest of the missing data. So I'm I'm thinking that one's right. Uh, the next one about DNA. Um, uh, <laughs> wow, how does that happen? What could that possibly be? So you've got this older kid. They've got their DNA. It's left, maybe leftovers inside. <laughs> leftovers. The There's some, some, some <laughs> I don't know. pot roast. <laughs> got a couple a of little meatballs. Box. Your older brother Bob <laughs> is left over here for you. How, how long's How long's that been in there? Okay. <laughs> if you don't need it, I'm going to throw it away. But, uh, like Jay and Bob, I'm having a difficult time with the gold in the leaves of the eucalyptus trees. How the heck would it get in there? Why? Why? Are they, I wonder if, are there examples of, well, okay, so fish have mercury, um, so I guess you can have, uh. You ever hear of gold leafing, Evan? Oh, come on. Yes. There you go. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Very good. Nice, Jay. I don't know how this this younger siblings thing. It's absolutely baffling. I have no idea what's going on there. I'll say the DNA of the older siblings one is the fiction. And Rebecca. (sighs) The very little I have to add to this is that my (laughs) first thought was that the restoring an image from 1% seemed actually like the most plausible of these three to me at first. And maybe that's... Naivete, maybe that's one too many episodes of Law and Order SVU. <laughs> CSI. CSI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> enhance, enhance. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, it, it's certainly, like Evan says, I think with a simple picture of some sort, but actually maybe, I don't know, maybe a more complex. So for me, it was between the DNA and the eucalyptus. The only thing I could think about the DNA thing is that I have heard of theories, some hypotheses that, uh, some, that older siblings can uh, possibly influence younger siblings in terms of how much testosterone and, and certain hormones they get from the mother. But I don't know how that would play with DNA. That seems, it seems ridiculous. It seems crazy to me. But when I'm down to two items and one seems completely off the wall, that usually means that that's the science. So the, the gold in the leaves I can imagine there being golden eucalyptus tree leaves because they're a plant. They absorb things from the soil. The soil has certain amounts of metals in them, but representing a significant source of the mineral, that sounds really fishy to me. So I'm going to go with that one as the fake as well. Oh, no. All Sorry, right. Evan. 
right. Evan's all by himself. So that means you all agree that a computer engineer has developed an algorithm to restore a digital image from as little as 1% of the original information. That one is science. Oh, uh, damn. I'm, so, I'm so happy and awesome. at the same time. De- details, please. It's a PhD thesis. Daniel Patternane Dallow, computer engineer of the University of Navarre. Um, so he developed an algorithm to optimize and reduce an image to between 1% and 10% of the original information and allow a 100% restore of the original image. Oh, I wasn't – oh, you bastard. I wasn't looking at it from that – like – so you're, you're talking about he compresses it. The algorithm was was developed so that – if a if a digital image is either partially lost or damaged, that it can be restored to its original, be, based upon this uh, pre being run previously through this algorithm, the information stored in that algorithm itself would only be between one and ten percent of the size of the image instead of the original image, but the uh, it works so well that they discovered that you could lose even a hundred percent of the image. And <laughs> basically, yeah. You know, when first I read that, it's like you could you could lose a hundred percent of the image and still restore it. So, in, so in other words, you could restore it entirely from the uh, the previously stored algorithm um, without having any bit of the image, the original image itself. In that respect, it does work like a compression. You know, where you you're essentially storing the information of the original image in one percent. Because of some kind of algorithm that uh, can represent the, the all of that information, yeah. So it's a phenomenal compression of an image. It's a compressed version that the, the guy what he figured out how to do is compress something down to one percent the size of the original image. In the final analysis, yes, that's what that's what. Thank you. All right, moving on. All right. Wow. Yeah, I think I think that well, Bob. I said yeah, thank you. It. Moving on. Thank yeah. you. Good day, sir. Good day, sir. <laughs> I said good day. Good day. That's a good day. You'll find your hat by the door. All right. Number two, a new study finds that younger siblings may contain cells with the DNA of their older siblings. Science Evan thinks this one is the fiction. Jay thinks that he has cells from Bob and me circling around his body somewhere. Gross. <laughs> I know where my cells are. Too many are. gross jokes. And this one right uh-huh. is science. Uh-oh. Science. I Sorry, knew it. Ah. Yeah, baby. This was a, this this study that established that it was in dogs, but the same thing should apply for people. Essentially, in the process of birth, cells from the fetus stay behind in the mother, and those cells can be then transferred to later siblings and actually survive. It actually does mean that Jay could have some cells surviving in his body that have the, the DNA from either Bob or I. Awesome. Lucky wow. bastard. Isn't that cool? <laughs> All right, let's go on. Number three, researchers find that eucalyptus trees concentrate gold in their leaves and in some areas represent a significant source of the mineral. This one is fiction. fiction. This item was getting around a little bit, so you know, I didn't want to use it as I a straight-up science. Which of you guys saw this news item? I did not see it. No. Oh nope. man, I thought for sure yeah, you guys would have seen it. So <laughs> it sounds like one of those things where I'm glad I didn't see it because well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah so right. I, was, I was hoping that you would have seen it and then not have read carefully enough. Those are the most annoying. They are the worst. What I, it's like, yeah, I read it. I got this one down. Like <laughs> what? I read it and I so still researchers got it wrong? have found eucalyptus trees with gold in the leaves, 
but it's in tiny amounts, not not insignificant, not a source of the mineral. Uh-huh. That was the bit that was fiction. Oh. So koala bears are high really? on gold. Is that what you're saying? Gold. Wow, you so you so rarely make an adjustment to it to the item based on quantity. Yeah, but that's significant, though. That's not just a a number amount. That's from an insignificant amount to like an actual source of the mineral. No. So the trees are bringing the gold (laughs) up from pretty deep underground through their root system as far as like 10 meters underground, they say, or tens of meters. And, uh, they, they, the gold particles are extruded in the leaves as a way of getting rid of them because they don't want to, they don't want the gold to build up in the tree itself because then it would become toxic. While this isn't a significant source of gold, they said that it, you would, it would require something like 50 acres of eucalyptus trees in order to get the amount of gold that would be comprised in a ring, like Lord of the Rings. It's, Thanks, Steve. Oh, a, yeah. a ring like yes, that. Just Thanks, to clarify. Before that, yeah. I never would have thought <laughs> like, of a ring one. Oh, like a magical one ring. ring. Cool. Yeah. Okay. It's worth it then. Uh, so not, not a practical source of gold. Tremendous. Steve, would you be able to control like koala bears at that point if you had that ring? (laughs) You you could. That's right. (laughs) So, but, but think about it. So you know how this would be useful. You could use this as a way of finding gold mines because this only occurs when the trees are above a significant source of gold. So rather than having to drill down and find out where the gold is, you just sample the eucalyptus tree leaves. And when you find a patch that has gold in the leaves, boom, that's where you dig. Bingo. That's awesome. Do you know that this guy made an algorithm where you can compress down a eucalyptus tree down to 1% and get some DNA from your brother? That's right. It's awesome. All right, then, Jay, give us a quote. Okay. This week's quote was sent in by a listener named Brian R. Page. And the quote is actually a law. And the law states... The pursuit of balance can create imbalance because sometimes something is true. And uh, that quote is actually authored by a man named Daniel Okrant. And, of course, you can understand, you know, what he's talking about. You know, skeptics face this stuff all the time, that uh, this idea of balance when there really isn't balance, in particular when we talk about issues with science versus pseudoscience, you know, we don't need to hear what the homeopaths have to say. It's irrelevant. Yeah, we we call that false balance, and yeah, but I didn't know false balance had a, a name attached to it, Ockren's law, and he was specifically referring to the media providing legitimacy to fringe or minority viewpoints. Looks like that was probably said somewhere in the 1970s. Yeah, so I guess that idea of false balance has been around for a long time. It's cool. Daniel Ockren. <laughs> All right, thanks, Jay. Couple of quick announcements this week. Jay, you're going to tell us about some pathogen cards. Yeah, a friend of ours named Todd, frustrated with the success of anti the anti-vax movement and also the idea that vaccines have been so widely successful that many people don't know much about the diseases that vaccines actually prevent. You know what they can do, what they look like. You know, imagine the the horrible idea of someone. Getting a vac, you know, getting something that a vaccine could have prevented some crazy disease that would debilitate you or kill you. You know, Todd thought it would be an interesting thing to, to make up these like cards that represent each of the diseases, but these aren't, these are more like mugshot cards. You know, that's the joke that, um, the cards are, are displayed in such a way where you get a quick view of what they are and you get to get to see a picture of what the virus actually looks like that causes all of these diseases. So he designed them poster size originally, but then realized, you know, he could turn these into like a set of cards. And now he has 16 of them. 
and he did an initial printing of them, and then there were the, he had given away and sold so many of them that uh, he ended up making another printing of them. And these are actually really cool, and the reason why I'm mentioning them is because uh, I like the idea of people understanding more about these types of diseases and you know what causes them and learn a little bit more about all the different things, not just the big obvious ones, but all the different things that vaccines treat. So the URL, if you're interested to look at these cards or to purchase them, so the tiny URL is tinyurl.com forward slash K-E-M-W-S-X-G, or you can go to the show notes to get to the real URL and take a look. Yeah, you know, and Todd gave us a bunch of these cards, Jay, last time we were together. I think this is, this is we were at Nexus when he showed them to us for the, for the first time. So what we can do is if you purchase anything from the SGU store, just go to the, go to the West website and go to the store. You see lots of uh, swag there, T-shirts, pens, SGU pins, or SGU keychains. Etc. Uh, we'll include a pathogen card in each order until we run out of them. I have a, a quick announcement as well. So next month, November 22nd and 23rd, I will be in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm going to be there for a headache conference. But while I'm there, I'll be free in the evening. So any of the local skeptics want to organize a get-together, I'll be happy to make time in my schedule. We, we could do a Q&A, just a meet and greet, or I can give a talk. Or we could just do dinner. Whatever you want, contact me. We'll organize something, and then I'll announce the details in the next week or two once we firm them up. They have conferences about headaches? <laughs> sure. Headache, headache is a subspecialty of neurology. But, um, like, do, they, do they have T-shirts that say, like, you know, I kick a headache's ass or something? I don't know. I'll let you know when I, when I go to the conference. Okay. <laughs> I'm actually board certified in the headache subspecialty. So one last announcement. So next Wednesday, that's Wednesday, October 30th, day before Halloween, we'll be recording our next show, and we will be uh, recording it using GoToMeeting with all of the, the five of us on video, and we are going to invite 15 of our listeners to join us uh, for the conference. We will send you the, the uh, link to join the GoToMeeting, and uh, although you won't be able to show video. You, the listeners will be audio only. All of the rugs will be audio and video. We'll do a Q&A section. So at some point you'll be able to ask us questions. Most of the time though, we'll just be, you'll just be listening in as we record a usual show, including hearing all of the between and background stuff that usually gets edited out. This is going to be on a first come, first serve basis. However, it's also going to be prioritized by membership level. So this is partly also going to be a perk to our members. In other words, the, the higher levels will take priority over the lower levels. So we'll just take the first team from, the first 15 from the top down. And if we get to the same level, then it'll be by whoever we got first. If you've already sent us a request, cause I did let our members know about this ahead of time. I can't count that because I didn't, I didn't formally ask for people to send in their requests. We're doing that now. So send it in again. Email us at info at theskepticsguide.org and include go to meeting recording in the subject line so we'll know what it is about and then we will we will accept requests through midnight on Mondays eastern time monday uh, monday and then that way on tuesday we could send out the emails to the 15 people who are going to that we're going to invite to to join us for recording 8 p.m. eastern time you need to have headphones you can't listen in over speakers and a microphone if you want to ask questions 
So it should be fun. This is a bit, you know, bear with us. This is the first time we're doing something like this. So it's a little bit experimental. We don't know how the bandwidth and everything is going to work. So no promises as to quality. And then we'll let everybody know how it went. And uh, if it goes well, we plan on doing more of these in the future. So there will be other opportunities to do this. Yeah, because it's our first time and we're testing it, I think we should uh, also just let everyone know there might be a, the idea that we have to cancel the whole thing at the last minute just because we have to record the show. And if it's like not working, it's killing somebody's internet or whatever, just be prepared and we'll try to figure it out and make it up to you next time. Yeah, this is definitely the first time experiment, so no promises, but it should go fine. I'm, I'm not anticipating we'll have to cancel the whole thing, but yeah, we got to leave our options open. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Steve, thank, thank you. you. It was, it was yeah. incredible. Except for science fiction, it was great. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to huluplus.com forward slash SGU. Or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you.